Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, also known as FPOG. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about generational financial planning. We're going to talk about what exactly that means, why legacy planning matters to everyone, talking about like what, what is wealth and how to right-size your time horizon and think about multi-generational planning. But before we jump into it, we got to give credit where credit is due. It's, it's almost like Brownlee Wealth Management Book Club. Uh, Justin and I have both been reading a book, Family Wealth by James Hughes. Uh, and he is a attorney who writes about legacy planning and governance. And it's just been a really, really rich book. So a lot of the ideas uh, in this podcast are from that. And we're just going to kind of build upon them, talk about it a little bit, and then kind of translate what it means to oil and gas professionals uh, as, as they think about these things. But we'll include a link to that book in the show notes. Justin, so I think like a good place to start is like talking about why legacy planning matters to everyone, right? Because I, I don't know if you've heard this in a meeting, but I've heard this in a meeting of like, you know, it being really important. Hey, I don't really want to die with a, like, I want to die with like not a penny to my name, right? I really want to spend it down. I don't want to raise entitled kids that kind of become, you know, inherit massive trust funds. And there's kind of this stigma surrounding that. And in some ways, like I get that you want to be a good steward, but like, first off, that's logistically impossible, right? Because, you know, decumulating a portfolio and market returns and, you know, understanding your time horizon and, and your life expectancy, like getting all those, all three of those things to intersect is really just a logistical nightmare. But to somebody who like kind of has that sentiment, um, which some of the underlying feelings I can, I can agree with, like, what would you say to that person who's kind of apprehensive to like, does legacy planning even matter? And like, you know, I, I don't really want to leave my kids a ton of money. What do you, what do you have to say to that person? I think uh, two points. Um, and the first one you just hit on, it is um, actually impossible to to do what you just said. And uh, I've certainly heard that uh, the desire to spend your last uh, dollar on your last day of life. So it's completely impossible. I'll try to hit on that real briefly. But then it's also, it's an important topic because not making a decision is making a decision. Um, you either get to be intentional about how your wealth is used over the course of your life and after your life. Uh, you can either be intentional about that now or you can let whatever happens happen. And so if it's okay with you, let, let's just spend maybe 60 seconds on why it's completely impossible. Is that, is that good? Yeah, do it. Why why is it impossible? Okay. So my my oldest son right now is playing little league baseball. It's been really really fun. Um I would compare it, you know, I if if you've watched uh little league baseball before, that's it's like a huge park with eight different baseball fields. The odds of successfully spending down your last dollar on your last day of life in a, in a natural way, it's kind of like one eight-year-old hitting a foul ball on one field and another eight-year-old hitting a foul ball on the field next to that uh, next to that game and those two foul balls striking each other in the air. 
Those are the odds that you're able to do that successfully. And the reason for that is uh, retirement planning has way more moving variables that that no one has any control over uh, than most people realize. There's your assets, there's your spend rate, there's your risk tolerance, there's inflation, but not just inflation, there's inflation in 10 different industries, all of which you interact with on a completely different level in your life. There's market returns. There's market returns in several different markets. Uh, There's how you decumulate the portfolio. There's taxes today. There's taxes 10, 20, 30 years from now. There's healthcare. There's healthcare costs. Um, There's different costs within healthcare for different healthcare purposes. There are dozens of of moving variables. Uh, So no, it's it's a completely ridiculous uh, notion. And I, I apologize. That sounds mean to say. Because um, I know a lot of people do think that, but it, it is, I, I cannot state this enough. It is a ridiculous idea to, um, it, it's a funny thing to say. and It's fun to joke about, to spend your last dollar in your last day, but it is absolutely not practical in the slightest sense. You cannot do it because if you were to get close, it would be so insanely risky with potentially 20 years left on your financial plan that you would never want to take that path. Because there are so many ways that the variables turn against you and then you run out of money with a decade to go. It's too you know, outlandish of a scenario. Yeah. And I like the baseball analogy you use because the sequencing matters, right? Like, let's say like all you and I had the exact same like investment returns, like, you know, the exact same 30 years of investment returns, but the order in which those 30 years came and went were different. We would have drastically different outcomes. So even if the outcomes are identical, but the sequencing is different, like the outcome is completely different, right? So it's just, that that, that was a great analogy because it really is hard. But just the thing I would add there is like, I think the other thing kind of talking about indecision being a decision is like, you know, you and I have been in the industry, not forever, but for a decent amount of time, right? And like, we've seen like wealth transfer happen. And I think you can maybe attest to this and, and fill in where I'm not making sense, but like a lot of times, like indecision is a decision and advisors err on the side of being conservative, right? And a lot of our clients are conservative. So like, you know, they've done a great job saving and they have trouble of spending. So, right, they don't decumulate the portfolio. And what happens is the second generation comes in and there hasn't been a grand vision cast and there's no clarity as to like, what was this money intended for? And, and like, unearned assets without intent, without clarity on like what their intent is, it really cre- usually creates two outcomes with the beneficiaries, usually in what in, in our experience, overspending, right? Because it's like, hey, this is house money. I, I never had, like, I didn't even know this really existed up until yesterday. So I'm just going to send it and spend it. Or really paralysis where the beneficiary identifies, man, I, I have this big, big windfall. There weren't a lot of conversations about what it meant, why it matters, but and I want to be a good steward of it, but I don't know how because we didn't communicate, we didn't talk about it. So I'm just gonna kind of keep working and act like it doesn't exist. And rarely is it one of those two extremes, but those are kind of the underlying feelings and actions that we've seen, or or that I won't speak for you, but at least that I've seen with with the second generation kind of coming into things. Anything you'd add there? Yeah, I think it's easy for a inheritance to be a burden. And this really was a great book. I would encourage, I would encourage all of you to, to check it out. But the book, in, in, in a lot of ways, in this topic, has historically been reserved for families with just absurd amounts of wealth. But I, I think something that Michael Kitsis and Carl Richards, they hit on this in a, in a 
presentation they had maybe a month or two ago. You don't have to pass along $50 million for it to make a really big impact in your kids or whoever you're giving your money to in their life. So it's it's a really big deal if you inherit any material amount of money and you don't want it to be a burden. You want it to um, incorporate well into, into a, a, a life well lived and you don't want the spend it recklessly and you don't want it to be a, a heavy burden. So I think that's, that's good. Yeah. And right. Financial planning is personal and it's it, like good financial planning balances these two, right? It balances the future and the multi-generational versus today, right? Like we would encourage everyone to like prioritize living a legacy and like, and hopefully you can leave one as well. Like from a finance, like hopefully you can leave one financially, but like really leaving financial assets is one dimension of leaving a legacy. And and that really kind of gets into our second point that the book really talks about what, you, Justin, you want to talk about the the dimensions of capital? And I, he uses a different word than dimension, but really kind of the components of capital and and how they all fit into, into thinking about legacy planning. Yeah. So uh, I think the question that you could pose is what is wealth? And so wealth is is beyond financial resources. And so I think you can you can say that wealth is, is relationships, uh, whether it's family or friends, Wealth is also human capital. So developing just human capital, developing your family, family members, children, and it's also, you know, financial resources. And so thinking about the idea that that you've been stewarded with relationships, with family, with friends, um, and with potentially financial assets. And the idea is how do you, how do you make great decisions with, with all of those things? Yeah. So what would be like an example of something somebody could do to like consider, right, their human capital? Because a lot of time when we have legacy planning conversations, it's about the financial capital. But what, you know, to get tangible for our listeners, what do you think somebody, something somebody could do to kind of cultivate or really take inventory on their human capital or their social capital or kind of, you know, a, a framework for being a good steward of and making investments and compounding that asset as well? Yeah, I think let's let's talk about that question. And I want to do it uh, with a story from the book. So the author has this story and, and he was young in his career at this time. He was an attorney at an estate planning firm and a company and it was a family company. And Jared was at uh, somewhere. It was, it was somewhere in Asia. Um, I want to say it was either Japan or Taiwan. So a family owned a business and asked him to come meet with them and, and meet with their business, basically the executives and and some of the family members in their business. And he didn't know why they were bringing him there. And he spent the first two days with them and still couldn't really figure out why they spent all the money to bring him out there. And then they shared that quote. And and essentially the quote was shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves within three generations. And so they, and they had a, a specific within their culture, they had a specific different version of that. I mean, that's been interesting to learn that uh, I think was the Irish version clogs to clogs within three generations or something like that. Every culture in, in the world has some version of this. And, and you might have heard that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Essentially, it just means that there's one family leader who essentially is not born into wealth at all. And so they've got an incredible amount of drive. They don't really have any safety net. And they go make it happen. They make a tremendous you know, amount of, of money and, and they produce a business or maybe they just have significant earnings and they make a lot of money. And they kind of come from 
you know, no, no money. And then the second generation has a completely different experience because all of a sudden they grow up in a really nice house. Their parents drive really nice cars. They go to college. And that second generation has a very different experience than the first generation. And then the third generation essentially spins down all the assets and they've never really had to, to work necessarily. And so that's the idea of your shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. It's really hard to pass wealth down. So I interject a several minute tangent story in there because the question, what is wealth? You have relationships, you have human capital, and you have financial capital. If the goal is to try to break that trend, so the, the typical trend in every society is that if you have a meaningful level of success, chances are your grandkids are not necessarily going to take the baton and, and, and continue to pass it on to their grandkids. Typically, it's really hard to see wealth secession done for more than two or three generations. And so like if you think about those, those dynamics, um, relationships, human capital, financial capital, well, focusing on relationships and human capital is really the answer to not succumbing to, to short sleeves, to short sleeves in three generations. I think it's really, really important, right? Like we, we look at this one dimension, but it's just such an incomplete thing. But I think, right, to tie it all together, I think one of the things that it talks about in the first part of this book too is like a family mission statement. So there needs to be an alignment, right? Like, and you kind of talked about what is wealth, right? Like there's these three categories, right? Social, human, financial. But like, I would say wealth is like, when there's excess and it's when what you have is greater than like what you need, anything above and beyond that, it like is excess. I would say that's wealth, but like the problem is like you and I can't say what it means to be wealthy for our clients. Cause it's a highly personal decision. We all have to decide and they have to decide, okay, what does it mean to be wealthy in these categories? Right. And how do I spend in ways that, that support that? Right. And I think not only do I spend in that, but like bring my kids along to understand why I'm making the decisions that I am and to, and to cast vision of, Hey, we're doing X because of Y. And then having a mission statement to be able to point to is like, Hey, here's the lens by which we've defined wealth. And here's how we're going to, and with that being said, here's how we're going to allocate our energy, our relationships and our money accordingly. And I think you said something before the podcast that, that describes that money is a tool to advance and protect real wealth. And that changes your mindset if you, if you really get behind that. And I think one thing that we'll want to touch on in a later podcast are what are specific ways to help your children understand and, and, and be a good steward of, of financial resources. And that has a different answer for a 10-year-old versus a 15-year-old versus a 25, 35, 45-year-old. But they all matter. Um, and it's, it's not something that you learn in school or anything like that. Yeah. And, and that's a great point, Justin. We probably should have covered that earlier. This will be the first of a few because this book's just so dense and there's so much wisdom. But really today, we're essentially making the case that generational planning matters to every family, right? Regardless of what, where your assets are. And then in future episodes, we're going to talk a little bit about governance, right? So building some mechanisms to kind of successfully do all this and how estate planning fits into that. And then we'll get real practical of like, okay, how does this meet me where I'm at in this stage of life? And just kind of some ideas and some application, but, but it will, we'll kind of sequence it out, but this is the first of a few. So, you know, if there's cliffhangers or unanswered questions, 
don't be alarmed. There's more on the way. That's right. And I also want to say that this is also very applicable, whether you have children or not, because it goes back to the very beginning. Uh, it's virtually impossible to uh, spend all of your money exactly in accordance with how long you're going to live. Uh, so having some intention behind your legacy planning, your estate plan, and what you want your money to do, it still matters uh, in, a, in a huge, huge way. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's change gears a little bit and talk about, right, one of the big things when you think about generational planning, like you and I both before this, we're talking about this idea of like, the time horizons that James sets out, I, like I love them and they're just kind of so, they're so big, right? And they're just, we never think of them, like think of time in that way. So like, let's just, you want to just briefly run through like, okay, what are the various time horizons and how if, you know, the naming conventions and the duration of time and how, how does that affect, you know, how we think about all this stuff? James says there are three different time horizons to be concerned with short-term decisions, intermediate decisions, and long-term decisions. And uh, this sounds pretty standard, but it's not going to be standard. Short-term, in James's view, is anything 20 years or less. An intermediate-term decision is, is, or decisions are decisions you will make over the next 50 years. Those are intermediate term. And then long-term decisions are 100 years. And so I think it goes without saying, but if you think about uh, your money, your legacy plan, your family with those time horizons, it really, it really changes the way you think. And it changes the way you think about those dynamics of wealth. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, we position ourselves as like being fans of long-term investing, right? And when I think of long-term investing, like we try to get people out of the trader mindset to the the buy and hold for decades mindset. And this is like that on steroids thinking centuries, you know, century plus from a time horizon perspective. But but I think I think that matters is like because too few people, they don't build estate plans that are open-ended enough and mission statements that are inclusive enough of like everybody and their goals and their wishes and kind of just beginning the plan. And I think, right, one of the reasons we do see the the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations is because of a lack of that thinking. And because like our initial, our clients got reaction or like, you know, listeners got reactions probably like, that's a crazy long time, right? Like just like mine was. And, and part of, you know, our initial reaction to that thinking that's just an unbelievably unreasonably long time is part of the reason maybe that adage is so common. Well, and it takes me back to the different dynamics of wealth. So yes, it does you know, make you think differently in terms of how do you make financial decisions if capital is supposed to last for you know, 100 years, but it also really just amplifies, well, the best way to make sure that, that capital would survive, that, that assets would survive, it's really not about investments. It's in, in my case, it would make me think a whole lot more about what am I doing to be a good dad and prepare my kids um, for the world? What am I doing to make them good, responsible, you know, leaders of, of, of everything they're going to be given? And so the human capital dynamic, just relationships in life, it, when you think in super long timeframes, those become really important. Yeah. And I would say, I would say more important, right? And James argues that in the book that financial capital really is the least important of those dimensions, right? And like the fixation on an estate plan or legacy plan that just really focuses on financial assets and doesn't create mechanisms to 
create space for people to develop their ingenuity or take risks to cultivate their human capital, right? Like legacy planning has historically meant financial planning and money planning, which is the least important dimension, right? Which shows why some of these plans fall short or they create entitlement or, you know, it creates dissension among the second generation because it's not dealing with these more important dimensions of capital. That's right. That's right. And I think, right, I I do like want to touch on, right? Like I I do think this is a cool idea because it's not too different than than what we do, right? Like long-term investing, right? Just really placing strategic bets and hoping that they pan out, right? And having a long-term enough time horizon, right? To to start Brownlee Wealth Management or to endure some underperformance because we're not all US growth stocks in the, you know, in the 2010s, right? It's like we live in this day in and day out, but it's just good to good to zoom out and just kind of remember that, you know, financial capital is just one of the dimensions you're optimizing for. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay. The last thing I really want to talk about kind of in painting why or why legacy planning matters and kind of really the how, like in a good framework painting. I, I loved this idea of when you're optimizing capital in any dimension, right? Risk and return are correlated. Right. If you look at the most successful investors, like they, they were aggressive. If you look at the most successful entrepreneurs, they had nonlinear career paths, right? Where the upside and downside, you know, they didn't have a W2 job. They made their own job. Right. So like we believe deeply that these ideas of risk and return are tied. And so we need to think about that when we're allocating all of our capital. But one of the things that James talks about in the book that, that we really liked and really resonated with us was, Essentially, the goal being Unimix over a really long period of time, you know, when you're thinking 100 years from now, you're not going to get everything right. And you need to be gracious to yourself in that. The goal is to make slightly more right decisions over wrong ones over a really long period of time. And like, I feel like that was the perfect thing to kind of supplement the long term thinking because. If you get too caught up in the long-term thinking, right? Like I have no idea what the world's going to be like a hundred years from now, right? Like if you think about the year, the world a hundred years ago, you could have told somebody what was going to happen and they wouldn't have believed you, right? So like, you're not going to get everything right. You got to be gracious to yourself in that, but still learn from your mistakes, continue to be aggressive and allocate capital. But the goal not being being right all the time, but being right more than you're wrong. And that compounding and doing enough really matters. What would you add to that, Justin? Yeah, I feel like that idea is uh, kind of back to maybe this is a Brownlee Wealth Management book club. Uh, Atomic Habits is a really popular book. I want to say it was New York Times bestseller number one for a long time last year by James Clear. And he, a huge premise in that book is that you're not trying to be a person who does one thing amazing one time. Instead, you're trying to be the type of person who does that thing. And that's a, that's a really different framework. You know, the NCAA tournament's happening right now. So let's take, I don't know, I think I think Texas Tech and Duke are playing tonight. Obviously, when this plays, it's not going to be the case. We're going to be well past that point. But uh, it's not as if, uh, let's say, Texas Tech, it's not as if Texas Tech is trying to make 12 threes tonight and, and keep Duke under a 40% field goal percentage tonight. Well, instead, a, a much more a logical uh, direction for that basketball team to go is just to be the type of team that can regularly make 12 threes and to be the type of team that can hold Duke to under 40% field goal percentage. 
And so when you think about generational planning, it, it really helps to think about you're going to get decisions wrong. You're going to get a lot of things wrong. And we're going to talk about how that just perfectly applies to being an investor uh, here in a second. But it's not really about getting one big thing right or wrong. It's being the type of person that does regularly get a little bit more right than wrong um, and, and building that into who you are. And you're so right. Like this like touches on like investing so well, right? Because that's where a lot of people get stuck is they try to make really big bets, right? Like to use, to use a baseball analogy, we're just sending it with the sports analogies this episode. So like if the goal is to get runs, what's the best way to get runs? It's to get people on base. And what's the best way to get people on base is just let counts get deep. Like, you know, take advantage of the opportunities and like, you know, don't swing for the fences, right? Like if you think about like winning a game 101, it's not the cool thing of like swinging for the fences. It's, what gives you the highest odds to get on base, right? And then just by doing that and like just trusting the process, like it, it's like being the casino versus being the person playing, right? Like like if you think about the odds at a blackjack table, the dealer doesn't actually have that, you know, I, I forget it's like 55-45 or 60-40. It's not like, you know, 90-10, the, the outcomes, right? The, but if you if you just stay in, having an extended edge for an extended period of time, the house always wins, right? And so the question becomes, how do you structure your portfolio? How do you structure your capital to where you have a slight edge, right? And you're gonna, and there's gonna be nights, there's gonna be seasons where, man, you walk away a loser and you know the blackjack table was not good to you. But over time, that sustained edge over an extended period of time makes for pretty good outcomes. So just interwove a, a casino and baseball analogy simultaneously. So hopefully y'all are still with me, but, uh, but there is a lot of translation to, to how we think about investing. So I want to say that again, the idea is you're going to make slightly more right decisions than wrong decisions. A couple incredible investment facts. How many days throughout the year is the market typically historically positive? Jared, I think it's about 55%. Yeah. So 55% of the time, uh, any given day, it's going to go up. 45% of the time, it's going to go down. And so if you are a passive, globally diversified investor, you are going to essentially have a lot of bad days. (laughs) You're going to have an incredible amount of days where you lose money on paper. But again, it's this idea of having slightly more right decisions. It's amazing how perfect this applies to investing. How many companies within the S&P 500 uh, lose, lose money, have a negative year? even in the middle of a bull market, a lot. It's amazing. If, if you, you know, we, we are pretty big fans of ETFs and, and funds and building passive exposure. But if you really get granular and look at every individual company in a portfolio, uh, I mean, there's thousands of them and a ton of them, a, a huge, huge amount have negative years during a great market run. So over the past 12 years, it's been an incredible bull market. Hundreds of companies in the S&P 500 have had really bad years, even in the middle of a great bull market. But that's that's really the role of a passive long-term investor who's, who's obsessed with compound interest. I want to go back to your baseball analogy. Getting slightly more decisions right than wrong as an investor, it really is uh, just a scenario where 45% of the time on a given day, you're going to your account's not going to be green. It's going to lose money. 55% it is going to make money. And so think about that. 
just slightly more right decisions. It's as if, to use that baseball analogy, you are just trying to get on base because you're batting first or second in the lineup. And with compound interest, you're kind of guaranteed that one of your three, four, or five hitters is going to hit a home run. So it really doesn't even matter if you hit a home run or you get hit by a pitch or you walk or you get an infield single. You're getting the same amount of runs. You just want to get on base. You're just trying to make slightly more right decisions than wrong decisions. Yeah. And I think, right, like the diversity, like making slightly more right decisions than wrong means like there's, there's implied diversity there, right? It implies you're making tons of decisions with your portfolio, with your human capital, with your family, right? Like the odds are, you know, the generations following you are not going to be like you. And they're going to have different aptitudes, right? So like having ways to measure their development and support them in their development that are maybe completely different than you. That's the way you build an enduring, an enduring family and an enduring legacy and an enduring estate plan is not by homogenizing the recipe that made six, that worked for you, that made you successful. It's about cultivating the diversity so that every, every human and every person in your ecosystem and can continue to just, you know, aggressively take the risks that, that make life worth living and then have asymmetric payoffs, right? And so, you know, having diverse human capital and finding ways to really cultivate that and and make bets matters. And right, like a lot of times people say, hey, like, you know, ha- having your financial base covered, it could promote reckless living, definitely. And that's why there needs to be a translation of values and a mission statement that that coordinates everybody. But it should also be a mechanism to promote thoughtful risk-taking, right? And just helping really everyone explore how they uniquely add value to that mission statement, right? Because the cool thing about a mission statement is how I work and live in a way that points back to that mission statement could vary drastically, even though it's both in alignment with that central idea. So I think having a banner that everybody can operate under, but also giving them creative autonomy to take inventory of their human capital and and allocate it in ways that are different than their siblings or their parents or their grandparents. Like that's, I think when, when the magic happens. And I want to just say something really specific to oil and gas professionals. Because if you're approaching retirement and, you know, let's say that you have three or four million dollars, you're probably not sitting there feeling like a Rockefeller on one hand. And so you you read a book like this that, and you're just thinking, well, this isn't applicable to me. But two things. One, think back to those 100 year time frames. So think about your own family 100 years ago. There's a really good chance your great, great grandfather, uh, when they were just getting started as a 15 to 18 year old in life, there's a really good chance that they you know, hardly knew that there was $3 million in the entire world. And so it's a big amount. But the second thing is back to the idea that you it's impossible to spend all of your money throughout your life uh, perfectly. You, you can't plan that out. Let's say that you have a couple of kids. Even in a really bad 35-year scenario over the past century, uh, you likely, if you started with three or four million, you probably finished with five or six million. And that would be a pretty, pretty not a great scenario. That would be one of the worst 35-year windows of the past century. Um, and so it's incredibly likely that, that you are going to have you know, some assets that do pass down. And so it's important to think through these ideas and just think through, well, how do I prepare my kids for, for something like that? And are they ready to be a good steward of that? And, and how do they prepare their kids and stuff like that to ensure that, that wealth and all the different you know, dynamics of what wealth is are, 
are stewarded well. Yeah, but I think that's why kind of we started where we did, right? Because you got to get the order of operations right. Not like, hey, what do I do with my money? And then I'll and then I'll try to connect it to what's important to me. You have to decide what's important to, you know, your family. And then, you know, that basically determines how, how you allocate the capital. But yeah, you're so right. Like people, I, I forget the Bill Gates quotes, but like they overestimate what they could do in a year and drastically underestimate what they can do in a decade, right? Just like continuing to help people right size, you know, their lives and take steps back. It's like, and that's something, you know, we need to do in our business and in our own lives. But right, this this is a great really first step into, just kind of thinking about legacy planning. And even if you don't have a ton in assets, just it's really helpful to just take a step back and think about the legacy you want to live and the legacy you want to leave and who the people are involved and the relationships you have and really just like take inventory. And even if it doesn't change your estate plan at all, I hope that this would just invoke gratitude in you, right? That as you take inventory of all the financial capital, all the relational, all the social, right? Like just reflect on those things and the goodness in them. And then kind of once, you, once you've had that, think about, okay, how can I... How can I leverage and steward these really well over over the coming years, decades, and century? It's it's an exciting it's an exciting task, and it's super personal. Justin, anything else uh, you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? I think that covers it. I'm excited to do a couple more uh, episodes on this topic and uh, keep diving in. Yeah, we'll link to the book in the show notes. Uh, and feel, feel free to read along or shoot us questions, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.